Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This podcast contains discussions of child abuse, sexual repression and sexual abuse, suicide, racism, misogyny, PTSD and PTSD symptoms, and spiritual oppression and abuse including guilt, shame, and fear. In most episodes, we will be mentioning some of these concepts in a general way without any graphic detail. If any of these topics or other triggering topics will be mentioned in great detail, we will let you know at the beginning of each individual episode, as well as in the show notes for that episode. Welcome back to the Leaving Eden Podcast. Welcome to the year 2022-2022. However you want to say it, a new year, a good year. We are here with you. We are your hosts. My name is Gavriel Hako, and I am here with my BFF, IFB cult survivor, Sadie Carpenter. Hello, hello, and happy 2022 to you, Gavriel, and to all of our listeners. To you as well. We are here today to talk about something that I have been waiting a long time to talk about. I'm excited for this. So if you listened to our last episode or watched that episode, you may remember that we discussed a few new developments in the direction that we want to take our show. We discussed that we want to do some episodes where we take a closer look at like some famous cults and some religious groups and, you know, apply Sadie's experience and knowledge to our analysis of them. I think that would be a lot of fun. So we're going to do that. Yeah, I'm really excited about doing this. I want to make sure that we say that we know a lot of our listeners are XIFB or X something else, some other controlling religious group, and that they listen to us to help them work through what they went through in their past. And I want to make sure that that set of our listeners know that we're not changing directions or doing a completely new type of show at all. We're just adding this in to the mix of the types of episodes that we do on this show. And this is something that I've been excited about for a while. 
Uh, for those of you that want to do all the IFB stuff, we're still going to talk about that. Uh, we're going to dive into a lot of IBLP stuff too. Next week, actually, I think we have a pretty IFB heavy episode where we're going, what are we going to talk? We're talking about Pensacola, right? Yeah. At time of recording, we're planning on doing an episode on my experience at Pensacola Christian College, which is the other cult college that I attended that I haven't talked about yet on the show. Yeah, but that's next week. This week, you know, as Sadie said, we're talking about something that we have wanted to talk about ever since we started even discussing doing a podcast. So today's episode is one that we wrote down when we first started brainstorming, like before we had even recorded one episode or we had even written an outline for one episode over like 18, 19, 20 months ago. Sadie, would you like to tell the people what it is? So today we are going to be telling the story of David Koresh, the Branch Davidians, and what happened in 1993 in Waco, Texas. I think this is one of the cult stories that immediately comes to mind when I say I grew up in a cult. And that's that's fair. This is a very well-known story. So we're going to talk about the story and then... We'll also discuss the similarities and differences between the Branch Davidians and the IFB and ways that I think this affected my childhood in the IFB and the perspective that I have on this story. Just a little background info. In 1993, the ATF, the Department of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, attempted to raid the Branch Davidians compound. Um, They were a a Christian religious group. Uh, Their compound in Mount Carmel, uh, Texas, which is outside of Waco, Texas. This raid did not go well. Um, It resulted in the deaths of several residents as well as several officers. The ATF then pulled back and lay siege to the compound in a standoff that lasted 51 days, the longest siege on U.S. soil in the country's history. And after 51 days, the FBI tried to raid the compound and the compound burned down and 75 people died, including, I believe, it's either 23 or 25 children. I keep seeing different numbers whenever I look this up. I've mentioned before that I'm always a little extra interested in things that happened right around the same time as I was born. And on this show in particular, I perk up my ears even more when it's something that happened in the three months between when I was born and when you were born. And this <laughs> fits that. So this is already beyond being a wild cult story. This is already a little bit extra interesting to me because this all started a couple weeks after I was born, and then it finally ended a few weeks before you were born. You know, older listeners are going to like remember exactly where they were when this happened or or when they were hearing about this. And we were, you know, we were just kids or not even born yet or like literally infants. But before we get into that, I just have to say that the Leaving Eden podcast is a fully independent podcast. This is the show about my co-host Sadie Carpenter's life, upbringing in and escape from the independent fundamental Baptist cult. We talk about this cult. We talk about other other cults, religion, fundamentalism, and the real and present threat that cults and cult groups pose to society as a whole. We seek to promote freedom of mind, freedom of thought, and freedom of religion. So if you like our show, if you are a fan of our show, there are a couple of things that you can do. You can join our Patreon where we have extended and uncensored episodes of this show. Uh, You can join our Facebook group, uh, which is going to be facebook.com slash groups slash Eden Exodus. You can join our subreddit, which is going to be reddit.com slash r slash Eden Exodus. And as always, the best thing that you can do to help our show out is just to tell your friends, tell your family members, tell your coworkers, tell your enemies about it, trying to get the word out. Before we get into the show, I want to thank our Faith Promise Missions tier patrons. Uh, we have several of them. As always, it's 
Emery Fairlosser, Jessica Tambo, Catherine Schneider, Kathleen Moncrief, Kristen Marie, Linda Morgan, Ruthie, and Wes the Cowboy. We love all of you. I'm just so happy that you guys have decided to uh, support our show in the way that you have. Yeah. Thank you so much to all of our Faith Promise Missions tier patrons for your support throughout 2021 and going on into 2022. And a special thank you to all of our patrons uh, who enjoy our uh, random bullshit between talking about the actual topic of our show. Sadie. Yes. I think we're all familiar with the devastation and the death that occurred in the Waco siege. It was very famous. It was very, you know, it was it, like everywhere. Where do you want to start this story? I think we should start with talking about how the Branch Davidians came into being and what the theology of that group is and how it evolved. So Branch Davidians are, correct me if I'm wrong, Branch Davidians, they're Seventh-day Adventist, right? Right. I don't know anything about the Seventh-day Adventist church except for that they go to church on saturday instead of sundays but that they're christian the branch davidians started as a split off from the seventh day adventists the seventh day i've heard adventists i'm not sure which one is actually correct so i might switch back and forth i apologize the seventh day adventists uh mormons jehovah's witnesses apostolics christian science church of god cockey all of those are kind of one category in my mind. And I'm not sure if it's that way because those are all groups that the IFB would categorize as cults. Haha. Or if it's because those groups have similar rules and similar intensity to the IFB while having radically different doctrinal teachings. So it's, it's, um, a lot of times they'll have the same rules, but different theology and different reasons for having the rules. So I think I, I sort of know what you're saying because these are all like Christian offshoots. But they aren't like mainline Protestant or like regular evangelical. They're like as culty as the IFB are. The IFB are definitely very culty. They're still under the umbrella of like Baptists, which is still like a mainstream denomination. Exactly. I do want to point out that the umbrella of Baptists is not like God's leaky umbrella of protection. (laughs) That's a different, different thing. Each one of those groups would have several major similarities to the IFB. So that might be in church practice, how the church is run, the rules, the standards, or the concept of extreme biblical literalism. So from the outside, I feel like, especially to someone who's not Christian, these groups might look very similar. I feel like if before you had met me, if someone had tried to explain to you the differences between all of those groups, you wouldn't have been able to quite understand how different they are. But now that you have the perspective of everything that I've explained to you, you see that these are very different groups because the theology behind why they do the same things is different. Yes. Oh, yeah. Like something can appear the same on the surface. But so in doing research for this episode, one of the things that I watched was the 2018 documentary, uh, which was Waco Madman or Messiah, uh, which I thought was decent. It seemed like it mentioned a few theological concepts, but it didn't really go deep into them. And there were a few guys that they interviewed that were like religious scholars that were experts in the theology that we heard a little bit from, but I really wished we could have heard more from them. I haven't seen that documentary. I saw the Netflix miniseries from 2018. I liked the way that you talked about different Christian denominations as being like a family tree. I think I can give you, using that analogy, the genealogy 
of Seventh-day Adventism and the Branch Davidians, would that help? Yeah, that actually would help. That would be great. Okay. This is really interesting to me as well. William Miller was a Baptist preacher in the early 1800s. And to place that in Christian American history, we're talking around the Second Great Awakening in the United States. William Miller got super into prophecy. And what you have to understand is, historically, not only was the Second Great Awakening going on, this is also around the same time in history that a lot of the super specific theology around the rapture and the book of Revelation and prophecy were being solidified into what we have today. William Miller was a major part of the concept of the rapture and the concept of Revelation being a book of prophecy that that has not yet been fulfilled, becoming the mainstream Christian theology that most evangelicals share in the United States now. I don't believe it would be accurate to say that he invented this concept or that nobody believed in this before him, but I do believe it's accurate to say that William Miller was a major player in making this the thing that most Christians believe. So he was a regular Baptist preacher and he got super into prophecy. He was doing all of this numerology stuff when about when he thought the rapture was going to be. And he was basing it on the prophecies of the weeks in Daniel and Revelation. So we all know about Heaven's Gate. We know about people predicting a specific date for the rapture. Their followers all go put on white robes and stand on the top of a hill, and then they get really disappointed because Jesus doesn't show up. William Miller was one of the first and one of the most prominent people to do that thing. So the Seventh-day Adventists, so are they followers of William Miller? Not quite. So William Miller did all this math, all of this numerology and interpretation of prophecy, and he shaped the mainstream views on this that are still prevalent in modern Baptist and evangelical Christian beliefs. People who followed him way back in the 1800s were called Millerites. A person named Ellen Harmon grew up in the Millerite movement, and she took all of this prophecy stuff very seriously, to the point that she believed that she was receiving visions from God about the end times and prophecy. So right there, you've got an issue, because I remember you telling me that in the IFB, women were not allowed to be prophets or to predict the end times. In fact, there was a class that you weren't allowed to take at Hiles Anderson that was all about predicting the rapture. I don't think it was about predicting the rapture because Hiles Anderson doesn't. They believe that it's a sin to try to predict the exact day. They just believe that you can study all the things that lead up to it and all the things that are going to happen after it, but you're not allowed to put a date on it. Huh. I think it was just about like rapture prophecy in general. Really? But yeah. you weren't allowed to take it. Well, I don't know what the class was about because I wasn't. I, did, I didn't take it. So right away, though, growing up IFB, of course, you guys are going to think these guys are a cult because they're letting women do prophecies. Right. I did hear it preached when I was growing up that one reason we knew that the Seventh-day Adventists were a cult is that they were founded by a woman. <laughs> <sighs> yeah. That's also also the same reason that we knew that the um, Christian science that Christian science was a cult because that was founded by uh, Mary Baker, Patterson, Eddy, I think. Seventh Day Adventists. Uh, this woman, Ellen Harmon, she met her husband James White, 
she believed she had visions from God. And then she met her husband, James White. And I have to say that I'm kind of a fan of this guy because, you know, for, for all that he started potentially an oppressive religious group, he was a very supportive husband. He bucked the system that wouldn't have believed in Ellen. He believed her visions and supported her writing several books. And the Millerite movement didn't want anything to do with her because they didn't believe her legitimacy as a prophet, but her husband did. And he co-founded with her the Seventh-day Adventist church. I'm not a fan of most of this, but I do have to love that he was supportive. And he was not only supportive, he didn't say, oh, well, I'll found the church because I'm a man and you can be subservient because you're a woman. Like They were co-founders and equals. So that's that's one good part of this whole thing. Why did he get to be equal co-founders with her just because he happened to be married to her? It seems like she's doing all the work here. I think he was more on the administrative end. Oh, okay. So so this, and then she was the prophet. So it's like us. So yeah. it's, it's like us where you and have the story yeah. and I do all the, I, I do a lot of the logistics. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. I'm with it, except for the, the the end times prophecies and stuff. That's not really my. Listen, bad. if I start making end times prophecies and you edit them out, I'm going to be very peeved. <laughs> <laughs> I really feel like you're harshing my mellow here. Now that I preached a sermon, I am unstoppable. That's true. I did encourage you to preach a sermon, so um... yeah. So now we're locked into this path that leads to me making end times prophecies and having all of our listeners put on white robes and stand on top of a hill and wait for Jesus to come back. To be honest, it was always going that way. Like we (laughs) joked about starting our own cult. Like I designed the uniforms for our cult, and I'm like, okay, so. Not that I think that you're not fashionable. I just think that like you should run these things by me before you 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 like settle on a design. Okay. Listen, <laughs> cult uniforms don't need to be fashion. How are? Why would you join a if they're comfortable, like, Lavi? They're comfortable. You join a cult based on whether or not the uniform is fashionable. So that's why you're not IFB. I mean, that's okay. not not why I'm not at IFB. That was a triple negative. That was a little bit too much for me. Okay. So, geez, we need to get back to the Seventh-day Adventists. That's fine. Um, thank you for subscribing to our Patreon. Thank you for giving us money. You make this show possible. <laughs> you make my future cult possible. So the Seventh-day Adventist Church is a Christian denomination, and it focuses heavily on the imminent, what they believe to be the imminent return of Jesus. They focus on the rapture prophecy, and they keep some parts of Jewish law. Specifically, they keep kosher, and they keep the Sabbath on Saturday, not Sunday. Some Christian denominations do teach some form of keeping Sabbath, but it's always on Sunday. Seventh-day Adventists are the ones that teach that it's on Saturday. So at least if they're appropriating your religion and culture they're doing it right. When did they f- start out? Uh, Mid-1800s. Mid-1800s. I mean, Jesus hasn't shown up. It's been like 150 years, 170 years. Jesus hasn't shown up yet. Like, do you think that they're like, mm, maybe we were wrong about this? I don't get the impression that they are. So the Seventh-day Adventists also have a lot of health focus. So they're really about eating healthy food, not drinking, not smoking. To that point, James Harvey Kellogg, f- that guy, was a well-known Seventh-day Adventist. So A of all, I think it's kind of ironic that James Harvey Kellogg was all about supposedly healthy food, but he invented cornflakes, 
which my parents would absolutely never buy when I was a kid because it did not have sufficient nutritional value. But second, before doing research for this episode, I was under the impression that the Branch Davidians were named like they're the Davidians. I assumed that they were named after David Koresh and that he founded this group, but this was not true. I learned that the Branch Davidians were founded as a Seventh Day Adventist community in 1955. Right. The Seventh-day Adventists developed from the mid-1800s on, building on the views of Ellen White. And then, as is typical of religious movements, some splinter groups began to break off. One of these splinter groups was the Shepherd's Rod Association, which was later renamed the Davidian Seventh-day Adventist Association. Shepherd's Rod? Is that like the... No, no, not like that. Jesus (laughs) is the shepherd. The whole New Testament is full of analogies of like jesus is like a shepherd and we're like the sheep and then it like ties back into the psalms like they rot and they staff shall comfort me because david made a lot of those analogies in the psalms because david was a shepherd and there's uh, analogies about moses being a shepherd as well shepherd uh, right so talking about jesus as a shepherd follows in that tradition of referring to those people as shepherds okay makes perfect sense the davidian seventh day adventist association split off in the 1930s, along the concept that their leader was another prophet like Ellen White. So the mainstream Seventh-day Adventist church was like, no, your leader is not a prophet like Ellen White. And the Davidian Seventh-day Adventist Association said, yes, our leader is a prophet. So they started to live on a compound in Waco, Texas. And then there was another split, and that split-off group called themselves the Branch Davidians in 1955. Then in the early 80s, this guy Vernon Howell joined the Branch Davidians on their compound in Waco. And then Howell kind of staged a coup after the death of one of their leaders. So the leader that was supposed to be a prophet died. And then Vernon Howell tried to father a child with the widow of the leader because he believed his child was going to be the chosen one, the next prophet who would bring Jesus back to earth. The leader was in her 60s, so that was predictably unsuccessful. The widow died eventually as well, and Vernon Howell just made a power grab, became the leader himself, and changed his name to David Koresh. So I want to talk about Vernon. Okay, yes, please. Okay, two things. One is that I, in the documentary that I watched, they said that he was successful in getting her pregnant, but that she miscarried at like really? 60 something, which I mean, crazier things have happened, you know? Yeah, I didn't like, I didn't see that. It's not entirely outside of the, the realms of possibility. I mean, it's highly unlikely. It's outside the realms of probability. Yes, but it's not imp- like crazier, you know? I mean, he also could have just lied about that, though. That's true. He he definitely could have. Um, but I found out some things about uh, Vernon Howell that I found very interesting. So he was raised in a Seventh-day Adventist community, but did not get along well with the church leaders, particularly because he would push back on their theology and not from like, um, uh, you know, I'm rebellious. You can't tell me what to do. Not from that perspective but more from a, I know the Bible backwards and forwards. I know this better than you do. Your theology is wrong perspective. Hmm. So, you know, I see him and I hope you don't mind if I make this comparison is that at least when I read about his upbringing, I see a lot of parallels between what you told me about yourself growing up in the IFB, where you weren't allowed to debate with the boys when it came to theology, even though you were better, better educated than them on these matters. 
you know, if I'm going to be compared to a cult leader, at least it's a positive comparison. I think I'll take it. Uh, Do you know if it was specifically theology related to prophecy that Koresh was pushing back on? I'm not sure. The flip side of this comparison, there's so there's a different person that I would compare his story to, which maybe it's a little bit more apt that this reminds me of, you know, when Steven Anderson left the IFB to start the new IFB, um, mm-hmm. of course, not to compare you to Steven Anderson in any way, uh, because he's like psychotic and a conspiracy peddler and a hate monger who is afraid that his will fall off if he wears a shirt with a pattern on it. I but would like, rather be compared to David Koresh and Steven Anderson. They, they both suck, but I dislike Steven Anderson so much. Wow. Like when we when we were talking about him, though, and the reason why he left to start the I, it's he's wrong, but he's not insane. You know, you, you said that basically yes. with, okay. with the understanding of how like of how birth control works and whether or not it's if it's abortive or non-abortive or whether, mm-hmm. like how the actual uh, uh, when life begins, whether it's at uh, fertilization or implantation, like that whole thing. He had a better grasp on that than the people who were, you know, who were making the the policy decisions. Mm-hmm. Right. I, That's I what strongly about, believe yeah. that he's incorrect in the conclusions of most of his thought lines but i i don't think he's crazy no he's consistent he's got yeah he's consistent and he's logical i just think his logic is wrong like some of his facts are like the factual aspects of what he's talking about are correct it's just that his assumptions are the conclusion that those facts have led him to is a very different conclusion than the same facts have led me to so here's the thing about Prophecy. We see this in conspiracy theories. I've seen this happen within conspiracy theory online communities. Someone will propose something wild, completely different to the mainstream conspiratorial belief. And it's a gamble because that person will often have one of two outcomes. They will either become totally ostracized or they will change the course of thought in the community and become a leader in the community. With prophecy in particular, no one can prove whether your new wild theory is true or not. So the person who proposes something new and wild and unconventional is making a gamble. And the result, whether they become ostracized or revered, is going to depend on elements like their personality, their standing in the community, and the state of thought in the community. So David Koresh, when he pushed back against the original Seventh-day Adventism views, or later when he made his own splinter group of the Branch Davidians, was making a calculated gamble on whether people liked him enough and had enough affinity for him that they would go with what he was saying rather than reject it. So the thing about Koresh that makes this work Like, you know, like what you say, you know, what you were saying is that he's having to judge basically what do people think of him and say what you will about him, call him crazy, you know, call him whatever. He knows his Bible forward and backward, like to a virtuosic level. Aren't there a lot of recorded bits of him quoting scripture extensively, like not just a verse, but having whole conversations where 
people were asking him questions and he was responding to their questions by quoting whole passages or even whole chapters of scripture. Yes. Yeah. Or like when he was on the the phone with the FBI, like negotiator, the guy would ask him something and all of his answers would be like Bible verses. There's a quick sidebar. Do you know if the Branch Davidians were KJVO? Yes, I had to double check, but yes, they were. Yeah, so he can recite whole passages of King James Bible from memory. Do you ever notice that when I read passages of scripture for the podcast, I usually use NRSV or CRSV recently since I'm switching over from the ESV, but when I quote, it's always King James. I absolutely have not noticed that because I like I, I don't know the difference you know? between Yeah. How would I notice that? How would I know? I'm sure some of our Christian listeners and people who were raised Christian have noticed it's because I've memorized hundreds, maybe thousands of verses in King James as a kid and a teenager. So if I'm quoting, I'm quoting not what I've read recently, but I'm quoting what I memorized 10, 15, even 20 years ago. So I'm assuming that Koresh memorized all of this in King James, so that's what he could quote. So when he had his own cult, he just brought down the hammer and said, well, the King James is the only inspired and perfect word of God, which might have just been an element of convenience because that was what he knew. Do you know if Seventh-day Adventists are like KJVO usually or? I had to check on that as well. They are not now. I was not able to find out if they were KJVO in the 50s when David Koresh would have been a child or in the 80s when he was Seventh-day Adventist before he became part of the Splinter Group. I wasn't able to find out if they were historically King James only. I can tell you they're not now. Well, also think about this. Like if you're trying to like prophesize, right? And you're trying to use Bible verses to make a prophecy. If you're you if you use like a ESV or in like you know, like a different translation like that, it's not gonna have the same spice to it that using that like that old school King James is going to have. You know what I'm saying? That's very true. If you use the message, it's going to be like, listen here, friendo, Jesus is going to come down from the clouds on a horse. Can you dig it? The message? What's the message? I don't have time to tell you right now. The message is a, is a, is a translation of the Bible that is in modern, not slang, but modern casual vernacular in English. We'll do an episode on Bible uh, translations. Man, like I, it's fine. I don't mind. Like I think it's it's fine if that helps people like understand and connect to the Bible. I wouldn't personally I would not use it for my main translation, like the main thing that I use, but I wouldn't mind using it as like a supplemental thing. That to me that's like athleisure as everyday wear. That's exactly what it is. It's the athleisure Bible. <laughs> like I don't hate that I don't hate that it exists and I certainly don't hate if that helps people connect to the Bible and and feel like it's personal for them. Yeah. For myself I wouldn't use it but no. You know. If if you went to a church and if you're like I'm going to try out this new church and they're using the message as like their main scripture, would you walk out or would you no. stay? I mean, I wouldn't go to that kind of church because I get I have PTSD and I can't. Right. So it's, it's kind of a non-issue. No, for me, if it's like, if, if they're trying to be too, I'm just like, nope, I'm I'm turning right around. Anyway, so this sect, uh, we, we got to get back to this. This sect, the Branch Davidians, they believe that in order to be the leader, you must also be a prophet. This for me is where it like low key becomes conjecture because do you believe that David 
started calling himself a prophet because he wanted to be the leader of the branch davidians or do you believe that other people started calling him a, a prophet because they wanted him to be the leader of the branch like how do you think this comes about i think david started calling himself a prophet because either he really believed it or he was confident that other people would believe it. See, that's sort of a weird thing is that like you have to have for our denom- for our denominations leader, one of the qualifications that you have to have is be a prophet. Because like I said, you can't prove that you're a prophet. Can you imagine like we had like eight prophets come in and none of their CVs were good enough. We just <laughs> I feel like we're limiting ourselves too much with these <laughs> candidates. So you're a prophet, huh? <laughs> Who's going to win the Super Bowl? Hmm. And then you just like, have to wait. And if it's like, if their profit application comes in in March, you just have to wait like 11 months. <laughs> I don't know. Like having, like having, that's such a bizarre requirement because how do you know that God is going to bless you with a profit? What if God's just like, you just had like two profits in a row, save some profits for everybody else. <laughs> Uh, you're like, it's been a while, you know, the Israelites didn't constantly have a prophet the whole time they were around. There was some space between them. You can't always have a prophet. It's a luxury. You know, you have to work for that. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. So at what point does this guy change his name from Vernon to David? You know, I like, I know he legally changed it in 1990, but at what <laughs> point does he start calling himself David Koresh? So is it earlier than that? Like, So he was a leader in the Branch Davidians before 1987, but 1987 is when he actually made an armed raid on the Mount Carmel facility in Waco, Texas, and forcibly with guns and shooting, took control of the facility and instituted himself as the leader. I think he started going by David Koresh at that time. It's just a wild, wild west out here, I guess. It's Texas. Yeah. I mean, you could just come into a place with guns and say, I'm in charge. You know, there was a trial over this literal armed takeover and shootout, but Koresh and his followers were acquitted of all charges. Apparently, they invited the prosecution to the compound for ice cream after the trial. Not gonna lie, that's a power move. That's a baller move. I respect it. See, that's the thing. David Koresh was an egomaniac and a child abuser. He was an abusive, terrible person in every way. But even almost 30 years after his death, we both have to admit that there's something vaguely likable about him. And I think that looking at this from that perspective, that kind of explains why he got away with the things that he did. If he's that likable 30 years after his death, knowing everything we know about him, how powerful was his charisma and his personality for the people who knew him in person. I mean, can you imagine if OJ, like when he got off, he like was like, Hey, Marsha Clark, you want to go get ice cream? That's such a crazy move. I I watched a lot of footage of this guy preaching though. Um, David Koresh preaching. He's mesmerizing. Like, have you ever had the experience where you're in school and there's one class that you never miss? Because the lecturer, like your professor is just like so on their A game. Like I remember in when I was in college, I would skip classes all the time. You know, the just what what I did. Sorry, mom. Because um, you're allowed re- to at a regular college. Yeah, they're like, I mean, you're not allowed a lot. It's going to affect your grade, but it's not like they're going to penalize you and put you in front of like the disciplinary committee. And no, like, you, have- at Hiles Anderson, you fail classes if you miss more than I think. I think you can miss three times and. Each time that you're late counts as one third of an absence. Um, Mm. And that includes like sick days or if you have to go home for something. 
Oh, wow. No, yeah. see, we had we had like sick days that you could take. But I mean, and there was like one or two absences before it like knocked you down a whole letter grade or something like that. So I would calculate this into like, how many classes can I miss if, if and still get like a C in the class? But anyway, like there was one class that I would never miss. And that was narrative theory because my professor was just so on it all the time. Fascinating class. Like same vibes watching this guy, not my professor had the same vibes, but like this, the, you know, like same like enthusiasm that you can see just in the people watching. And then like halfway through the sermon, right? He would just turn it into a rock concert, right? So he would just start playing music and singing. And he was legitimately like a good singer and a good songwriter and a good guitar player. And so the music production, like, and it would sound like contemporary to the area, like in which he was playing. So it's like a 1980s keyboard heavy mainstream rock sound so he sounds like imagine if you're at church and it turns into like a kenny loggins concert yeah this might be controversial but i feel like david koresh was what charles manson thought he was like with like the music and the cult leadership and the personality i was gonna bring up charles manson so like having listened to david koresh's music and having listened to charles manson's music i can say that koresh's music is like a lot better than charles manson's music and it's not even a contest yeah manson's music is just not good i don't know i think it's kind of a a hitler's painting situation it's not that it's awful but it's absolutely not good and the person making it thought it was great but koresh's music is fine it's listenable. It's much more pleasant. Yeah, I think that like the Charles Manson music situation, it's like a novelty. Like I've talked to people, people are like, man, Charles Manson was a brilliant songwriter. I'm like, was he though? Like, would you think that if Charles Manson didn't f-ing kill a bunch of people and there wasn't like the... Like if he was just like a failed recording artist, would you be that about his music? There, I mean, there's a dime a dozen like folk singers from the late 60s, early 70s that sound exactly like him um and most of them are way better and none of them ever killed anybody so nobody ever like okay i don't know koresh's music is like you ever see somebody who's really accomplished in one field and then you're like oh you've got a doctorate in biochemistry and you're a violinist that's kind of what it's like like dr brian may yes like brian may although brian may's music is way better than koresh's and his astrophysics uh knowledge is very preferable to Koresh's theology. So now that we've determined the musical hierarchy that goes Manson at the bottom and then David Koresh and then Queen, we've got that sorted out. Should we talk about the new rules and beliefs that Koresh imposed after his takeover? Yeah, let's do it. So we know that the Branch Davidians were already pretty strict before Koresh took over. Like we talked about, they were heavily into prophecy They were mostly vegetarian. They didn't smoke. They didn't drink sex only within marriage, etc. One of the changes that I saw that that Koresh instituted was called the new light. So basically what he does is he just blanketly annuls everybody's marriages. So if you're married, Koresh is the prophet. He says you're not married anymore. Uh, You can probably see where this is going. He then took all unmarried women which was now all of them, as his wives. As one does, if you are a cult leader, very logical progression of uh, of events. Well, if this was just regular culty stuff, that would be one thing. But Koresh took, quote-unquote, wives 
as young as 12 to 14 years old, which is a completely different bad thing. I want to talk about this real quick because with the reasoning and the explanation for this, uh, Koresh was obsessed with the book of Revelations. Another Charles Manson connection. Actually, Manson was also obsessed with the book of Revelations. It makes you wonder why... God put revelations in the Bible if literally everybody was going to go wacky over it. Maybe revelations, like if you're f***ing all about revelations, this is like, uh, uh, he, he, he put it in there as like, a, you know, canary in the coal mine situation. Okay. If somebody's obsessed with revelations, <laughs> this is how you know they're a wacko. That's, it, it's yeah. God's built in red flag system. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. He's obsessed with revelations. He's obsessed with these end times prophecies. Um, he's convinced that after the end times, there will be 24 children of God who will live in God's kingdom on earth. These children will be born of virgins. So he's the prophet. He is the incarnation of God on earth. Therefore, his children are going to be these 24 children. But what does this mean? This means that he needs virgin wives to bear his children. Ew. Oh, that's, that's, that's creepier than I thought it was. Oh, it's very creepy as hell. It's batch insane. He is literally going to these girls' parents and saying, I would like your daughter or daughters in some cases uh, to be married to me. They will bear the children of God. And the parents would like give him the go ahead, which at the time under Texas state law was legal. Like, I'm not joking. The age of consent at this time was 14 as long as you had the parents' permission. Oh, this is my 30-second soapbox for the episode. I haven't done one of those in the last couple. Uh, in I, I believe it is only in three states that all marriage under the age of 18 is illegal. Uh, many states still allow very young child marriages, like 14, 15, with parents' permission and that's something that should be changed. Absolutely. <clears throat> but I have Absolutely. two questions. I have two questions about this. Yeah. Uh, so number one, if that was his reasoning that these 24 children needed to be born of virgins, why did he also take wives that were already married to other men, nullify their marriages, and then say they were married to him now? I don't know. I was hoping, actually, that, that you could make sense of it from like a theological perspective. I got nothing. Wait a minute. When you get like baptized or whatever, do they say, oh, you're born again virgin or something? Is, is that a thing? Um, I've heard of that. Okay. So being a born again virgin is typically somebody who is not married. It, it would always apply to somebody who is not married, but has had sex, but now regrets that they did that and wants to recommit to not having sex again until they get married. And this is this is like a, a not uncommon thing in fundamentalist and evangelical churches, but it doesn't have anything to do with baptism. Like the, the King oh. of the Hill episode about this is not particularly accurate. Uh, it typically, it's more of like a recommitment. You might get a purity ring or in some cases you might have some kind of ceremony at church, um, but it's not usually tied to baptism. Well, maybe he's annoying all the marriages and saying all these women are virgins again. I mean, that seems like a bit of a theological stretch, but also this is David Koresh, so I could buy it. Yeah. Mm. My other question is how many children total that were his children 
did he have at the Waco compound? I'm not sure. I've seen some reports say that there were as few as three, but I've seen other reports say that there were as many as 12. On the first day of the siege, he sent half the children out of the compound, but none of the children that he sent out were his. So all of the children that were his, he kept on the compound and all of the like and all the ones that he sent out were other people's. But there were also other children that weren't his that were that were kept on the compound. Also, so I don't know. Is it possible to know whose which children that were born there at the compound were his and which were not? Well, I assume that. And like, like did these children even have so- social security cards? Well, I assume that like because he knows all the marriages. Therefore, all of the children that are born after he does that are ostensibly going to be his right he's gonna say they're his but so in the in the netflix um fictional series about this i i trust it as a source somewhat because it was written with the help of david thibodeau who was a was like high up in the branch davidian organization and very close to david koresh and he was was one of the few survivors of the fire that we're going to talk about and he escaped and wrote a book So according to him, there were couples that were not happy about Koresh having annulled their marriage and saying that the wife belonged to him now. So then the wife would get pregnant and ostensibly it's David Koresh's kid. But there were always rumors of, oh, it's actually her husband, like her original husband's child. Or it's this other totally random guy in the cult's child. And I don't know if these children had... Uh, birth certificates or social security, much less medical care, much less paternity tests. So I'm not sure how possible it is to know which children were biologically David Koresh's children. That is nuts. I don't know. Also, also, like, cult leaders don't have a great record on understanding human reproduction and biology. So I wouldn't necessarily trust you know, when when I when I found out I was pregnant and I wanted to get my pregnancy dated, like find out how many weeks I was along, uh, I went to an OB, not a cult leader. I, I don't know that I would trust David Koresh to like accurately determine that. Also, though, David Koresh seems smarter than most cult leaders. Yeah, he seems really smart, but he also seems like the kind of guy. And this is 100 percent hypothetical. Uh, I am making this up, but... Bear with my hypothetical situation here. So let's say uh, the on the day that he annuls all the marriages and takes all the wives for his own wife, one of these women is seven weeks pregnant, and she doesn't know she's pregnant yet uh, by her, obviously, by her legal husband, the man she was married to before David Koresh annulled her marriage and said that she was his wife now. And then David Koresh has sex with her, and then... X number of weeks down the road, she realizes that she's pregnant and David Koresh goes, oh, yeah, that's my child. It's true. This man did claim that he got a 60-year-old woman pregnant. So, right. Like, so I'm not saying, not necessarily that he was uninformed, but but um, he might have had a willingness to fudge the details. I'm, so I'm, I'm just saying that, that it, there are a lot of reasons that it could be difficult to know who is actually biologically his kid. Because we know there are like 20 to 25 plus children on the compound. Well, so here's one example of it. There was this one couple who had been trying to get pregnant for years, literally years. And David annuls their marriage and then like gets the wife pregnant and the husband like just stays around. And I guess he's fine with it. Like what? the? I, f- I think that comp- that couple was fictionalized in the Netflix series that I saw. 
I, I I didn't see the Netflix series. I started the Netflix series and I was just like, nah, I don't like this. So um, well, that's good because we ha- we're coming at it from slightly different perspectives. Yeah, I I don't I don't uh, know, and I weirdly didn't turn up just a list of here are all of the children that were killed at Waco. Well, yeah, because they they did not have like birth certificates, probably. That's what I, yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Because I would think if all of their names and exact ages were public information, I would have been able to Google it when I Googled list of children that died at Waco. So that that leads me to think that some of these children were not able to be identified because their parents died and they died. And you know how are we going to know what the circumstances of their birth was? Right. And that also is to do because I keep seeing like I would look up how many children died. Some reports said 25 and some reports said 23 children. That's right. probably so, to do with that. And like, how do we know that there weren't children born there that were just never reported? Like we, we don't it seems that is what I'm assuming. I'm assuming that we just don't really know. So Koresh sent out when he sent out those children, he sent out the ones that came to the compound with their parents and were there was no way that he could have fathered them with group members because they showed up on the compound like already born so, because those weren't part of the 24 children of God that he was trying to make. So I want to talk to you about another major belief change that he brought to the Branch Davidians. It's a good deal less creepy and criminal than the fathering 24 children part. Okay, so what's that? So this relates to the claims of being the prophet and specifically who he was claiming to be. So this is this the Lamb of God thing? Yes. Because I've so I've never read Revelation, but I've read that he was claiming to be the Lamb of God, which is a character from Revelation. Uh character. <laughs> That's fun. Uh I figured you would have seen that in your research, but I also figured that you would have no concept or context for who that is or who this, what this is supposed to mean. So I don't know what this means. Um, I just read that the Lamb of God can reveal the seven seals and that most people interpret the Lamb of God to be Jesus because Jesus is the sacrificial lamb. For the purposes of this explanation, we're going to go from the futurist and literal view of the book of Revelation. So futurist means that it is prophecy and it is true uh, and is literal, but it hasn't happened yet because that's the view of Revelation that the Branch Davidians were working with. It also happens to be the view shared by the IFB. So I'm pretty well prepared to talk about this. So the Lamb of God is, like you said, a character in Revelation, almost always seen to represent or be literally Jesus because of a passage in John where John the Baptist greets Jesus with the phrase, behold, the Lamb of God. It's also a callback to the Passover Lamb who was sacrificed to cover sins. Jesus was sacrificed to cover all of our sins. In Revelation, only the Lamb of God is worthy to break the seven seals of judgment over the world. And then the Lamb has a marriage supper symbolizing the church's marriage to Jesus. I assume that it was more of a callback to Leviticus because there's pages and pages and pages of just bring one goat for a burnt offering, bring one lamb for a sin offering, burn it on the altar so that it is aromatic. The priest will make atonement for the like that is literally pages and pages and pages and pages and pages of the book of Leviticus. Uh, I was assuming it was that. Well, it is it is it is that. So Christians believe that the and I, um, I should probably blanket apologize at the beginning of, of saying this. Christians believe that the sacrifices in the temple were like, okay, you ever wake up on Thanksgiving morning 
and you don't want to eat a big breakfast because you're going to eat a giant Thanksgiving meal later. But you uh, want to eat yeah. something to hold you over until Thanksgiving dinner. I am extremely familiar with this. Okay. The Christians believe that the temple sacrifices were to hold us over until the sacrifice came, which is Jesus. Huh. So, like, temporary, which is why they, they were commanded to do the sacrifices, year, some of them yearly, some of them daily, some of them weekly. And that's also why Christians okay. don't believe that we have to do animal sacrifices anymore. There's also all of this backstory to the metaphorical meaning, like what the goat means one thing, the lamb means one thing, the bull means something, the turtle dove, the bread, the wine, the herbs, like anything that's commanded to be brought as a sacrifice. Christians have found all of these metaphorical meanings in all of that. It also goes into how the lambs for the sacrifice at the temple had to be without blemish. They couldn't have an illness or an injury. And that is why Christians believe that Jesus had to be sinless. Oh, and that's why when we watched the Passion of the Christ movie, they broke the other two guys' legs that were crucified next to Jesus, but they didn't break Jesus's legs. Right. Because Jesus could never, if you interpret it that way, that would mean that Jesus could never break a bone, specifically a leg, also had to be sinless. This is just like, this is like a bonus secret messages. (laughs) Like, ever. you know what I'm saying? Like, if... Yeah, it, it's it's extra. a it's a lot. I haven't I haven't really dug in and deconstructed it yet, so I'm not going to make big comments on what I think about all of it. I just there is just <laughs> there is so much theology in my head, and I haven't had time to work through all of it yet. Yeah, man. I mean, it just seems like you guys are are like parsing every word, like literally every single word. That's just well, that's it, and that's why the fundies have to have one translation that they agree as the perfect word of God. Because they're going to go into every literal word and take it apart. Does that make does it like does that yeah. make sense? Make that make sense now? That's I mean it's a bit much if you ask me, but <laughs> it is I'm it no is rabbi, certainly so. a lot. I have taken um, like college level courses on the symbolism of every item in the tabernacle and the temple. Like you know, in I think it's in Leviticus where they it goes through and it talks about the tabernacle had to have this many hangings of red cloth and this many hangings of sheepskin that's been dyed purple. And it's this many cubits by this many cubits. Right, and there's and a pole the, yeah. every so many cubits for a total of X number of poles and the, the seraphim and on the the seraphim on the Ark of the Covenant and the things in the Ark of the Covenant. Did you know Christians have assigned metaphorical beliefs to the items inside the Ark of the Covenant? No, but that doesn't surprise <laughs> me at all. Maybe they they were probably just like... Uh, I mean, when they, when they wrote that down, they're like, okay, what have we got here? We've got uh, uh, Steve. Steve is, is you know, he back when we were in Egypt, you know, when we were slaves in Egypt, right? Steve was the guy who was really like, I mean, he was a slave, but he was good at building. <laughs> you know, he, he built <laughs> for Pharaoh. He built <laughs> for like Pharaoh's brother, Kevin. Um <laughs> You know, like he was, he was the guy that you'd go to. Okay. Well, we got Steve. Steve's one of us. Steve's a Hebrew. Uh, he escaped from slavery with us across the Red Sea. So Steve is the guy who's going to help us build this tabernacle. He's going to tell us, you know, because <laughs> like Steve, he's just got to make sure that the building's up to code. Really? That's what I, t- you know. Right. But um you can't be like if it's a tabernacle for God, you can't be like skimping on the tent posts. You You've know? clearly never been inside a Baptist church. <laughs> oh my gosh. Our Baptist church is not up to code. <laughs> I, 
I I doubt I, you could find one that is. Wow. Oh that's my gosh. A stunning indictment of the Oh, that's why Jack Scott had to be friends with the fire marshal. Duh. Yes. I, yeah, you remember me talking about how the the fire alarms at Hiles Anderson College were all messed up and were going off at like five in the morning all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he he had to he had to be buddy buddy with the fire marshal to make it work. Anyway, Baptist, fix your shit. Uh, they have building codes in the Bible, and you guys are like busy. Like, what did they mean by this? What did this tent post represent? It meant hold your fucking ceiling up, guys. Come on, hold your ceiling up. What's a tent post for? What does what does God mean by telling us that we have to have this tent post this many? And the Baptists are like forty eight tent posts to his side. Well, forty eight divided by four is twelve, and there were twelve disciples, and there is four something else. Four is the day that God made the fish and the birds, which means that God's just like, look, <laughs> you got to have that many tent posts, or your, your ceiling's gonna fall down, man. So that is the difference That's between. What it is. I feel like we just explain the Christian the difference between Christianity and Judaism in a better way than anyone has ever explained it before. <laughs> <laughs> you guys read too much into this shit. like it's i swear it's 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 in, it's hilarious dying. but it's also like infuriating at times you know what i'm saying yes like, i just i i just feel like i'm so impressed with like the 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 beautiful illustration we just did of the differences between christianity and judaism yeah okay we should go back to talking about david koresh yeah because, because what he's saying when he says he is the lamb is he's saying that he is Jesus on earth. See, this is what I don't get. If like if he were Jesus on earth, though, and he went to change his like, so he changed his name. Right. Why didn't he change his name to Jesus? That would be easier. His name. He was born Vernon and then he changed his name to David, but now I guess he's also Jesus. I don't know, but I do have a couple of theories. This could have to do with just wanting to be a little bit more mystical. Like maybe he thought mm -hmm. that changing his name to Jesus would be too simple or too obvious, and he wanted there to be more of a connection that the listener had to make. He referred to himself as the branch, which is a thing. Christians sometimes refer to Jesus as the branch of David or the root of the branch of David because Jesus was genealogically descended from King David and there's a prophecy that the Messiah will be descended from David. So mm. I think maybe maybe he wanted people to like follow that rabbit trail and make that connection and feel like they they had discovered something special. Why doesn't he just make David's be his last name or like Davidson? I know plenty of people whose last name is is David or Davidson or I think that this my theory is that he decided that he was a prophet but he didn't decide that he was Jesus until later. So I'm Yeah. I I think that if I were Jesus, I know I would know that I was Jesus to begin with and I wouldn't go around telling people to call me David instead. I think that is a really good theory. The earlier leaders of the Branch Davidians also claimed to be Jesus. So I think it makes sense that Koresh was originally like, yeah, I'm a prophet. And then later when he got popular, he was like, yeah, I guess I might be Jesus too. You know, if two men say that they're Jesus, then like at least one of them is going to be lying. That's true. Mm. So David Koresh also imposed some very standard 
bite model style cult practices on the Branch Davidians. Like what? So uh, physical punishments, both for children and adult members, beatings for those. Yeah, standard beatings for those who stepped out of line, uh, food deprivation, sleep deprivation as punishment, separation from family members who are not part of the group, shunning ex-members, forbidding current members to contact ex-members, run-of-the-mill abusive cult stuff. And so it was around this time that he starts putting armed guards at the exits. Yes. And there were a lot of firearms on the property. Koresh was partially funding the compound with illegal and gray market weapons sales. So they definitely had something to protect there as well as not wanting their people to get out. Koresh and the Branch Davidian compound was also being investigated for child abuse because sometimes there would be families that would join and then one parent would say, F*** this, I'm out, and would be trying to get so the kids would stay with the other parent at the compound, and the parent who left would be trying to get their kids out of there. So there were custody battles, and it seems like someone who was in a custody battle or an adult who escaped reported that there was child abuse going on. So David's best friend and second-in-command for a while was this guy named Mark Baralt, and when David instituted the new light policy and started sexually pursuing underage girls, Baralt left and tried to alert the authorities about what was going on there saying, look guys, there's this cult. This isn't right. He's sexually abusing these teenage girls. They're young. They're like 14 years old. I know because I saw them go in the room together and I overheard what was going on. You need to do something. And then the authorities just didn't do jack. Oh, so we do actually know who made that report. Oh, yeah. Baralt tried for years to get them to look into this, but they didn't do anything. But it wasn't that that got the ATF involved, because the ATF doesn't have jurisdiction over child abuse. It was the reports of a lot of firearms on the property. Yeah. So do you want to go take up the offering? And when we come back, we can talk about the siege and what happened in 1993. Yeah, let's do it. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, Sadie here. If this is your first time listening to the Leaving Eden podcast, make sure you go back and check out episode 57. It's a primer episode for new listeners. That episode tells my personal story and gives you all the terms and information that you'll need to know going forward. Also, check out our cult true crime series, The First Family of Fundamentalism, so that you can get the whole cult story. If you like our show, you can support us by joining our Patreon, where we have extended and uncensored episodes, as well as other bonus content available. You can also join in the discussion in our Facebook group, That group is called Eden Exodus. Tell a friend, tell a family member, tell your worst enemy. 
The Leaving Eden podcast is a fully independent podcast, and we really appreciate your support. Now, back to the show. We are back from our break. We are talking about the Branch Davidians, the siege of their compound at Mount Carmel. So let's let's go. It's go time. In late 1992, police are getting reports from neighbors who live near the Branch Davidian compound of what sounds like automatic weapons firing. Automatic weapons, um, for those who don't know, are different from semi-automatic weapons because so with most guns that you can buy, you pull the trigger once and it fires one bullet. Fully automatic weapons, it means you pull the trigger and hold it down and it will just keep firing bullets. These weapons are highly illegal, even in Texas, for obvious reasons. This gets referred to the Department of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, a.k.a. the coolest department in federal law enforcement. Basically, what had happened was David Koresh was so certain of an apocalyptic showdown between the Davidians and the federal government, who he believed was Babylon, that the Davidians had been modifying stock AR-15 rifles to fire fully automatic, which ironically was the thing that brought federal law enforcement down upon him. That is one extremely weird thing about this. It can look like Koresh made extremely accurate prophecies, although they were self-fulfilling prophecies. So, of course, they were accurate. Yeah, it's like the theological equivalent of taking out a life insurance policy on somebody that you're about to murder. So the ATF tried to execute a search warrant. In the very early morning hours of February 28th, 1993, and the Branch Davidians were armed to the teeth. So there was a shootout and four ATF agents were killed and six Branch Davidians were killed. So one of the reasons why this initial raid went so poorly is because the Branch Davidians had been tipped off that the raid was about to happen. So for some context, this was February of 1993. Uh, about a month into the presidency of one William Jefferson Clinton, a Democrat, after 12 years of Republicans being in charge and running on tough on crime. So we've got Bill Clinton, Democrat. ATF is going to have to go in front of Congress and argue, OK, we need more money. Give us more money. Also, at this time, their reputation is not particularly stellar, given that the year before there was an 11 day standoff at Ruby Ridge in Idaho. I don't know if you heard about this, um, but it resulted in the deaths of a woman and a 14 year old boy. Weren't some of the same negotiators involved at Ruby Ridge and at Mount Carmel? I'm not sure. I'd have to look I that think, up. I, I believe I read that. I might be wrong. Is that why on The Simpsons, like during this time, they kept just like like FBI hostage negotiators were like a regular punching bag? I bet it is. Because, I mean, you remember there's like several Simpsons episodes or just, you know, TV episodes where they're like, okay, we've got a hostage negotiator and th- this guy is a fucking lunatic and just. I bet that's the joke. Yeah, uh, it's got to be because that just always flew over my head. But now I think I get it. I don't know. In the documentary, there was this one guy who was like this guy named Jim McGee, who is one of the FBI guys. Every time that this guy opens his mouth, I'm just like, this guy is saying literally the worst thing that anybody could say in this situation. Just he's he just like seemed like he was the dumbest mother that ever appeared on screen. Like, I swear 
I was just like, this guy is talking again. He just looks like he is so out of out of his depth and has no idea what the f- is going on or what he's dealing with here. Ugh. And the, the, but they were pulling this whole stunt to like get more funding. Yeah. Oh yeah. So basically, there was this this standoff at Ruby Ridge, eleven days long. They killed a woman and a fourteen year old boy. I think. Uh, I think he was fourteen. They killed a woman and a child. And the guy that they had the standoff with, like, basically pled to minor charges and got off scot free. So, like, they did not look great right now. And it used to be that they could just go in and ask for it. They'd get it. No big deal. Democrats come into office. ATF, they're maybe a little afraid of getting their funding cut. So what are they going to do? They want to put a few in the win column. Okay. They want to, they want a W. So a big flashy raid on these crazy fundamentalist cult people. They're stockpiling automatic weapons, abusing children. They've got this cult leader. He's marrying all the girls when they turn 14 or whatever. Yeah, I get why that would look good and why the ATF would want to go for that. What I want to know is how the Branch Davidians got tipped off to the fact that there was going to be a raid on the morning of February 28th. The ATF tipped off local news because they wanted to go in with cameras rolling. Oh, because it was for publicity. Yes. So Koresh knew in time. He found out through the through the news so he could get his people to arm up. Not quite. One, so one of the camera crews was driving around because the ATF was basically told the news, okay, you'll want to come to the Mount Carmel uh, cult compound at whatever time because like some shit's gonna go down uh don't tell anybody though and one of the camera crews is driving around looking for this place and they ask a postal worker hey do you know where the branch davidian mount carmel place is the atf told us to be there at a certain time Uh we gotta be there to cover whatever it is that's gonna go down and the postal worker happened to be a branch davidian and as soon as that conversation was over he warned koresh that the that the feds were coming oh my god yeah so what makes this even worse is that the ATF knew that Koresh had been tipped off because they had an undercover agent inside Mount Carmel who was in the room with Koresh when he got the phone call. And so he goes back to the ATF and he says, we don't have the element of surprise. These guys have automatic weapons and grenades and they're ready for us. There's more than 100 people here, including women and children. This is a bad idea. Don't do it. But the ATF decided to go anyway, which considering that news crews were there covering the scene and that they were looking for a big PR win was an unmitigated f-ing disaster. Do you ever think about what this was like for our parents, especially our moms? Like my mom had just had a baby and your mom was just getting ready to have a baby. And this was the big news story on the TV. So I actually asked my parents about this. Um and my mom told me that she like knew some of the details, but that she wasn't trying to pay attention to it because it was just too icky for her. I asked my mom, too, and she said that she was aware that this was going on, but she wasn't following it closely. I, I That was not the answer I expected. I guess it's just a different world with the 24-hour news cycle. I wouldn't list international shipping as one of my top 10 interests, but I sure as heck will remember forever that that ship got stuck in the Suez Canal, the Evergiven. And that was the big news story right after Chuck was born. But I guess our moms just like weren't scrolling TikTok to try to stay awake when they were up with the baby in the middle of the night. 
I think this is just a different world thing because I assumed that it would be burned into their memory. Yeah, I mean, it's not quite like at 9-11 level, you know? So your parents weren't following the initial raid at Waco or the siege, but a lot of people were. Like, wasn't this making national news pretty quickly? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think they were. I think my parents were following it peripherally, but this is like huge news. People were showing up from all over the country to like protest the siege because they saw it as like a David and Goliath situation and the government was infringing on people's religious freedom. We should talk about that because I I can't say that the government was wrong to want to raid this place because there were clearly illegal things going on there, like illegal guns and child abuse. But I think a lot of people saw this as a dangerous precedent because is this disrupting the balance between government and religion? And I can't completely discount that perspective either. One of the people who showed up to protest this siege was Timothy McVeigh, a.k.a. the Oklahoma City bomber. I have such mixed feelings on this because I think in this case, wanting the illegal activity at the compound to stop was very legitimate. But I also think that the ATF, like you said, they targeted these people because they could call it a cult. They could delegitimize this as a friend religious group and eventually get away with killing a lot of innocent people. And that would be newsworthy and potentially increase their budget. So I can't and I can't stand for that. So this I don't know, this gives me a lot of conflicting feelings. And this is one of the things I can really see both sides on. Yeah, I mean, it's just like, you know, if you're managing a sports team, say, you know, and your team is in a bit of a slump, what are you going to do? You're going to look ahead in your schedule and you're going to try and find, you know, maybe a weak team that you can beat and hype them uh, like and try to get them hyped up and coached up for that matchup. Because, you know, if you win one game, then maybe you get a rhythm going, you get back in the groove. I think that's what the ATF were trying to do here. And like, it's just. But, but what when they it comes to doing yeah. is going out on the sports field and <laughs> causing injuries to every opposing player and the cheerleaders and the coach. Yeah. And, Which yeah, seems I mean, like a bit of overkill. You get the W, but. <laughs> but it's, it's not, not necessarily no. the good PR you were looking for. No. So I want to ask you, uh, because you grew up in a post Waco fundamentalist movement. How was the siege, you know, this action by the government? perceived by the IFB. I think the net effect of this on my life was that it increased paranoia. The IFB as a whole was already paranoid of having their kids taken away. And this is part of the reasoning behind starting Christian schools like Jack Hyle started Hammond Baptist because they didn't want their kids in public schools. And for some fundamentalists, it's because they would learn evil evolution and sex education. But for other fundamentalists, it was because public schools had mandatory reporters. So if they sent their kids to school with bruises, CPS was going to come knocking. And I think for a lot of fundamentalists, it was both A and B. I remember as a little kid, and I've said this before, my parents were very much on the mild side of the IFB spectrum with physical discipline. They did spank us, but compared to what some of my friends went through, it was nothing. I personally I personally don't believe it's ever right to spank or hit a child, but my parents did not know any better, and they went to great efforts to do what they thought was the best thing for us, so I'm not, I'm not mad about it. Many IFB parents actually beat their children, which is a different thing and a much worse thing, in my opinion. All that to say with a switch. Switches and belts and um rulers, paddle giant paddles. Mm -hmm. 
Um, it can be the, the, the things that you were here can be really terrible. All of that to say, even with my parents' physical discipline of me and my siblings being very much on the mild side for the IFB, we were told to never tell anyone that we were spanked at all because my parents were worried that we would be taken away by CPS, which I don't think is accurate. Like I, from what I've learned about how CPS actually works, I don't think they take children away for like mild disciplinary hitting. Like children who are fed and loved and well cared for and clearly have a loving family. That's, I mean, that's one of those things that's maybe a bit more marginal. Right. And, and, and the goal of CPS is always to keep families together. But my parents had the idea that if anybody found out that we were hit at all, that we would be taken away by CPS. And of course, that's the worst possible outcome because you end up in a worldly home and you don't have the teaching of the IFB. Right. So the messaging that I grew up with was the the Branch Davidians were a cult and they did preach a false gospel. But the fact that the government was able to raid them meant that the government could come for us at any moment. And I've talked before on the show about the trauma of strategically choosing my place to sit in church so that when the government came in with guns, I could jump in front of my dad and take a bullet for him or so that I could try to protect other people. And I think that some of that paranoia probably came from this incident in Waco. Wow. One thing that, yeah, one thing I wonder about, because these anti, this anti-government sentiment, especially like the violent anti-government sentiment that we're like, we've seen this snowballing from like far right culminating in, I think like a year ago, what we witnessed at the Capitol, like how much of that traces its genesis back to the siege at Waco? I'm nowhere near enough of an expert to try to be definitive. So I'm not going to try to do that. I do have an opinion though because what's that of course i have an opinion (laughs) i think this anti-government stuff goes back before waco for the ifb specifically because i've seen it in pre-reagan sermons from jack hiles there's one sermon that i've read and it's from the period of time that hiles was opening the hammond baptist schools he's talking in this sermon about how the liberals have taken over the government and they want to teach your children all of these evil things like evolution and sex ed hiles also mentions in sermons a lot about welfare He liked to use really dated and sometimes racist rhetoric about people who receive social services, which bled into a lot of mainstream IFB teachings about how like some pastors would use like the X group of people are lazy and they're all on welfare. Other pastors who were not as racist would say things like this is socialism. This is communism. And I asked my parents about this, and my dad told me this really interesting story about a sermon that Dave Hiles preached at youth conference in Hammond in the late 1970s or early 1980s. In this sermon, Dave Hiles had people break into the room dressed like uh, police with guns. He staged the whole thing to make to look completely real. So it was staged, but the people in the audience, the thousands of people there, thought it was completely real. He set up people to get, quote unquote, shot and had fake blood. Apparently, this whole skit was very realistic. And then he eventually revealed to the audience that it was all a skit. But the point of this message was one day the government is going to come for you. One day you're going to get asked to die or reject Jesus. And you're have to be you're going to have to be ready to choose to die rather than reject God. Is this like the same thing with that uh, you're going to have to die rather than take the mark of the beast? It's similar. It's similar. It's a similar line of paranoia. It's not the same thing. I So I know your parents. 
I've I've met your parents at least. I don't know how like it, and I guess they're they're probably different people than they were back then. But how how did they see this and not just be like, yeah, I'm out. I'm nope. This happened. Me. This would have happened before my parents were members at First Baptist of Hammond. Oh. They didn't get there until like 1983. Okay, that makes a lot more sense. Yeah, so they might have heard about this after the fact, but it wasn't something that they saw happen or were present for. And it almost certainly wasn't something that they would have known about at the time that they joined the church. This is very on brand for David Hiles. Yeah, traumatizing teenagers is very much his MO. I personally prefer this to his usual methods of traumatizing teenagers, but not Yikes. by much. True, though. <sighs> So thousands of teenagers and youth pastors from around the country saw this go down, and they all went back to their churches with this message. So from that example and from the examples of Heil's sermons, what I see is that there was some anti-government sentiment 20, 30 years before Waco, and then it maybe waned a little bit when Reagan was in office and then came back with a bang in the 90s. But that being said, I absolutely think that Waco was a flame that reignited this anti-government sentiment. It made religious people in general feel unsafe, and it gave people something to rally around when it came to this kind of ideas. Yeah, it's so wild that some idiot's grandstanding for money from Congress got turned into like a tentpole issue for fanatics to rally around literally decades later. So this is a thing that I feel like people miss about my story. A lot of the more extreme beliefs that I was exposed to, like this idea that the government is going to come in and take over our church, this wasn't something that I was hearing my dad explicitly preach from the pulpit, but I was getting little pieces of general anti-government sentiment from the teachings that he learned from Jack Hiles, from hearing Hiles' recorded sermons, which I did a lot as a kid, and then other people who were influenced by the same things but came to different conclusions. And in a, kin a kid's mind, two plus two made five. And I read that book about the when I was way too young about the Columbine kids that were killed for Jesus. So mm -hmm. I ended up being exposed through getting little pieces here and there to beliefs that were more extreme than the beliefs my parents had. A lot of times I tell my parents about things that I believe to be true as a kid and they're shocked. Really? Yeah, they're like, we didn't teach you that. And, like, and they didn't. They, and they're right, they didn't. But they taught me a little piece of it, and I took it way further because I was hearing other little pieces from all these other people. Also, my parents were looking at this information with adult eyes, and because of the way that the IFB treats children and childhood, my parents failed to realize that if I was exposed to these extreme beliefs, I didn't have the ability to process them with any discernment. I was just going, I had been raised and bred my entire life to believe what I was told. So I was just going to believe what I was told. So by the time this filtered down to me, the impression that was made on me was like, obviously, we being the IFB know that we're not nearly as crazy as those people down in Waco, but the government thinks we're just as bad as they are. The world thinks that we're just as bad as they are. And if the government could take them down, then the government is just looking for a chance to take us down and kill us all, too. And, you know, you were a smart kid, too. And smart That's, kids, that was part like, of the problem. <laughs> right. Right. Being a smart kid in the IFB is not a good time. It, it's not <laughs> your brain like you're being told one thing by your dad 
and then you get told a little factoid to d- to deal with that and then your brain makes the leap between those two things you don't learn that's false until you're 22 you know right and you're it, like being a smart kid in the IFB is being a 6 year old who is fully convinced that they will never become an adult because either Jesus is going to come back or the government is going to put a gun to your head and say wear pants or you die and you're going to have to say no and like go to heaven to be with Jesus and and we've heard Heather talk about Heather Heath talk about her like six year old suicide attempt because she had gotten all of this messaging about well heaven is way better than earth and not believing that she would ever get to be an adult anyway or if she did it wouldn't be worth it because heaven is so much better than earth and that that is how you end up with that sort of story or stories like me being fully convinced that at some point I would have to choose between a pair of jeans and getting shot. And that I would choose to get shot and go to heaven. So hold on to that thought, because that is something that we are going to circle back to later in this episode. Okay. Uh, Yeah. Mm. I don't know. Like this whole thing that like thinking the government is going to take you down. But didn't Mike Pence speak at First Baptist Church of Hammond when he was running for governor of Indiana? Yes, he did. I think Kyle Anderson students also did some campaigning for him. This is during the period of time where I have amnesia because of my concussion that happened to Hiles Anderson. Uh, According to Wikipedia, he spoke there in September of 2011, which means that hypothetically I was there. I have vague memories of his visit being talked about, but I can't definitively remember if I was in the room or not. But I I guess I probably was. You're probably sleep deprived anyway. I was was sleep deprived first month at Bible college. I've got some some, uh, leftover amnesia from the concussion. If anybody knows if I was there or not, um, Alicia, if you were sitting with me in church, please let me know. This is weird to me, though, is that you can have people in positions of power. I mean, you know, this guy was the governor of the state and then later the vice president. And he's out here saying, I represent your interests. Vote for me. But the government's still out to get you. It's like, well, there's one good man in the government against all odds because the government's run by Satanists. Hmm. But he's probably not going to be able to stop the onslaught of satanic power. He might just be able to make it easier for us in the short term. So the siege continues for days. David Koresh tells the hostage negotiators that if they play a tape of him on the radio, then he will come out immediately. Was it like a was it like a demo tape? Was he wanting to get representation? <laughs> uh, no. Was it, they, his, was it his music or like him speaking about something? <laughs> No, no, no. It was him. Uh, it was like a, a manifesto almost. Oh, like, okay. You know, him preaching. That kind of tape. Yeah. So he's, <laughs> sorry. Uh, he, he's, so they play the tape and like, he was like, play the tape. I will come out immediately. They play the tape and he's like, sorry, I'm not coming out. So they convince him to send out a few adults and like half of the children. And those people are taken into custody. Is this during the same time of the siege when they were playing loud music to try to make the Branch Davidians sleep deprived? Uh, I think this was before that. But it's wild to me. This, so this is the same tactics that used in like Panama. But like David Koresh, like they're, they're like playing loud music of them. David Koresh starts playing his own music back at them. So like with this situation, 
it is just so clear to me that the feds did not do their homework on this guy and had no idea what they were dealing with. It's obvious that they were just trying to use like, they're like, oh, these guys are like, basically, we're going to try the same shit we try with a foreign military. Mm. But these people are religious fanatics. It's a whole different ball game. Also, yes, they are using these tactics on a dangerous person who is heavily armed, but the collateral damage is families with children. There were little babies in there. There was a five-month-old baby in there that eventually was one of the children that got sent out and survived. The Davidians were abusing children and like defiantly violating firearms laws, but they weren't enacting violence on anyone outside of their community. So it's not like this group is an imminent threat to the security like so where you would have to like make a risk assessment and take into account the threat that they pose to you and like weigh the likelihood of children's deaths in the compound versus deaths of people outside as soon like as soon as they found out that the davidians had been tipped off they should have called the whole thing off yeah it's like okay well the potential deaths of children is worse than the potential abuse of children Right. Like, yes, if children are being abused, it needs to be stopped. By any measure. Yeah. It doesn't make sense. And I just have to imagine having a five-month-old baby. You remember when Chuck was five months old. We were still recording during her naps with her in the baby carrier. That's during the time where I always sound a little bit breathless on the podcast because I was on my feet rocking her back and forth in front of the microphone while talking to try to help her stay asleep. It, it sounds so miserable to have a baby while they're doing these sleep deprivation, like bright lights and loud music techniques on you. Yeah. I mean, and the siege lasts 51 days, 51 days that they're doing that. So the FBI decides that like enough is enough. They're going to roll the place. They're coming in and they're punching holes in the walls with literal tanks. They're shooting in tear gas. Um, They're going to go in. They're going to get Koresh. They're going to get the kids uh, and just be done with this quagmire. This is just wild to me. The FBI comes in with tanks, like real tanks, just punching holes in the walls, knowing that children were in there. Yeah, there was one guy who they I they saw I saw him interviewed in the documentary. Um and he's like, "Yeah, the hole of the tank punched in the wall, that's where my head would have been, you know, if I were sleeping." So on the day they went in, they started tear gassing the compound. They tear gassed the compound for 6 hours. And the Davidians had like gas masks, but, you know, because of course they did, they're like doomsday preppers, but the gas masks didn't fit the children. So all of the kids got like just totally tear gassed for six hours while the adults, uh, I mean, gas masks don't completely eliminate the gas, but they're like doing a lot better. That's, that's just tragic. Yeah. That's awful. Like, why wouldn't they not, why would the, the FBI not think about this? I don't Have you ever been tear gassed? I have been in the vicinity of tear gas a few times. I've never been right on the front lines of it. One During the George Floyd protests, uh, I was not downtown because I was in my first trimester of pregnancy and tear gas can be really harmful if you're pregnant. But I live about a month. you're not pregnant. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Uh, But it can cause miscarriage. And that was not something I was willing to risk um, as well as as COVID and you being people being higher risk for COVID complications when they're pregnant but i live about a mile from where the big downtown protests were and there were several nights when tear gas blew into our apartment and it was bad from a mile away 
Some of our listeners may remember that in our second first family of fundamentalism episode, uh, the Jack Hiles two, I sounded a bit under the weather. And I think I said on the show that I was sick. That was not true uh, because we recorded that episode just a few days after one of the big protests in Portland where U.S. <laughs> marshals were coming in and like cracking skulls. I had the grave misfortune of inhaling tear gas for about two minutes. And before anybody says anything, I wasn't doing anything crazy. I was just standing like with a crowd of people. I was like, you know, chanting some shit. I wasn't burning anything. I wasn't being an Antifa radical or nothing. <laughs> I was just standing there, you know, chanting. I got tear gassed for two minutes and I felt like I was dying. You got tear gassed on the same night that, that uh, Ted Wheeler got tear gassed. Yes. Yes. Actually, I was standing right near uh, the mayor. Right. I mean, it, being tear gassed fucking sucks. I can't imagine being tear gassed for six hours. That sounds like I would literally rather die than be tear gassed for six hours. No, thank you. So like around noon, se- like smoke is seen pouring out from the inside of this compound. And this is on April 19th. Yeah. 51 days later. Compounds on fire. It's burning down for the better part of like an hour. Nine people escape from the compound. Everybody else remains inside, burns to the ground. After the fire, FBI recovers the remains of 76 people, including either 23 or 25 children. I've seen conflicting reports. I've seen 24. And the remains of David Koresh himself. And Koresh actually died from a gunshot wound. So he was probably dead before the place burned down, right? Yeah. All of the people that were in the bunker with Koresh died of gunshot wounds, but everybody else died of smoke inhalation or carbon monoxide poisoning. But we don't know if he shot himself or if somebody else shot him. Yeah. This makes me mad, by the way. I don't know. Maybe he saw this as like his Masada, where you don't kill yourself, but you let somebody else kill you, and then he sent that person out. Yeah, but this is another cult leader refusing to take responsibility for his actions. His own children and the women he claimed as his wives died in a fire, which is a horrible way to die. But he didn't die with them. He took a less excruciating way out. And especially considering that like a forensics determined that the fires were set inside the compound, like three fires were set inside the compound simultaneously and that gasoline was used as the accelerant. So the Davidians knew that they were about to get rolled and they burned their compound with the children inside rather than get taken alive or die in a firefight. Do you think this was a group decision? Like if three fires were set simultaneously, Koresh couldn't have set all three. So his followers were would also have to been committed to dying in this fire rather than trying to get out. Yeah. So, I mean, Koresh couldn't have set any of the fires, but for different reasons, which I'll get into later. But like the other followers, you know, I, there was one guy who was a survivor and he says he reported hearing somebody say, set the fire over there and somebody else lit the f-. So multiple people were in on it. They were like the... It wasn't just Koresh. Koresh probably ordered that, you know, set the fires now. And they had this as like a contingency plan for his inner circle. Yeah. So one thing I want to talk about here, and I mentioned earlier, is this seven seals thing. When you brought up the Lamb of God, and we talked briefly about the seven seals, which is going to lead to a larger point. Koresh was absolutely obsessed with this seven seals thing, which uh, is the basis for much of his theory and his teaching. But from what I gather, these seven seals are like seven events or things that must occur in order for the end times to come. Is that right? This is all part of the schedule of 
the end times. So in Christian theology, in the the futurist literal view of Revelation, the end times are a seven-year period that begin with the most Christians would believe they begin with the rapture and they're divided into three, two, three and a half year sections. So the seven seals are events on the calendar during those seven years and everything will happen in an order and exactly the timing that Revelation says that it will and it all leads up to something. I'll try to explain it to you quickly. Hmm. The first four seals are the four horsemen. Uh, Then the fifth one is the cries of the martyrs. The sixth is natural disasters and judgment, and the seventh is silence in heaven. So in this futurist view, for people who believe that this is prophecy, these things happen during the seven-year tribulation, and it's all part of this schedule. So Jesus comes back, snatches up all the Christians in the rapture, and that starts the seven-year countdown. The first three and a half years are pretty good. The Antichrist begins to rise to power, but he's not showing what an evil guy he is yet. And then towards... The end of the first three and a half years, the seven seals are opened. Uh, The sixth seal being all of these natural disasters, comets hitting the earth, stars falling from the sky, earthquakes and fires. And then the silence of the seventh seal is the halfway point of the tribulation. By the way, silence of the seventh seal is a pretty cool band name. Uh, The halfway point of the tribulation at three and a half years. And then after that, the second half of the tribulation is when people have to take the mark of the beast. And it's when it really hits the fan with the seven trumpet judgments and the seven bold judgments more fires and earthquakes and comets and things. The Antichrist takes more power. He shows how evil he really is. And all of this leads up to Armageddon, the great final battle between good and evil, which comes at the seven-year mark from when Jesus came and snatched up all the Christians. That's hype as f***. Yeah, Revelation. (laughs) You're going to really love, I feel like, when we get into Revelation for this podcast. That's a great story, man. That, like... (laughs) bangs like, i haven't even told you about the 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 sharpest blade and like there's specific prophecies that antichrist is going to get killed and then come back from the dead and there's like a specific way that he has to be killed which is kind of vampire-ish there's some really cool stuff in there so i was i mean you know i'm a fan of prog rock we're both fans of prog rock uh, especially canadian progressive rock band rush i'm trying to imagine bingo card yeah bingo card no i'm trying to imagine you know the how like back in the early days they make songs like by and the snow dog and like the fountain of lamneth and yes. uh yeah and like hemispheres and shit, you know like 21 tw- like I'm imagining them being like, and the seventh seal was broken and began the seven years. Like that would fucking rock, man. That would be some revelations prog rock, man. I would listen to that. Why are we not starting a band called the silence of the seventh seal? And we do all songs about things that are supposed to happen in the book of Revelation. Dude, we could play like Christian, Christian. We could open for Striper. We could open for Striper. Striper's on tour. Dude, this would be bigger than Striper. Okay. Okay. Striper could open for us. Striper will open for us, man. We need a drummer as good as Neil Peart, though, and that's not going to happen. Well, we can just wait for Chuck to grow up. Yeah. She loves drumming on stuff. Okay. So that's what you're going to do. You're going to get her a drum kit. Yeah. Rest in peace, your ears and your your uh, <laughs> uh, sanity for like- She is allowed- the, the two years <laughs> when she's like still learning and she's not good yet. She's allowed baby by nature. So might as well just lean into it. I do want to note, because this is important, 
Some people, like Steven Anderson, believe in a mid-tribulation rapture, so they would think that the rapture comes at the three-and-a-half-year point, not at the zero point. So during the silence of the seventh seal, before the trumpet and bold judgments would be when the rapture is. So Koresh was telling people that at the the time they were on the fifth seal. Oh, 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 so martyrs. Oh, that makes so much sense. So he was preaching. uh, So who's Babylon? Is Babylon like the evil power that's going to. Yeah, people will get like super up in arms over who Babylon is. But most most evangelical like fundy Christians will say it's either the U.S. government, the Chinese government, the Russian government or the Catholic Church. That tracks. Okay, so he was saying that Babylon is the U.S. government and that he's the Lamb of God and that the Davidians are the martyrs. Yeah. And in the rules he set when he took over, you might remember that he said he was the only person allowed to interpret scripture. So what he was preaching was, this is going to happen and we're all going to die. So in this like documentary that I watched that came out in like 2018, which was 25 years after the siege, there were several survivors saying that like they're looking at this compound burn and they're watching it burn on TV and they wished that they were inside because they're like, I was supposed to be one of the martyrs. And to this day, they're like, I wish I had died in that fire because I was meant to be a martyr and I failed. And there were parents of kids who had been sent out and the parents escaped and the kids escaped separately. And the kids and the parents were being held separately because of of criminal proceedings. And the parents were like, I wish I hadn't sent my child out of that compound. I feel ashamed that my child wasn't martyred with David. So that's one place that I really relate to this story. I definitely have experienced survivor's guilt myself. And I think a lot of religious abuse survivors from many different cults and coercive groups have experienced something similar to survivor's guilt. So when people are survivors, not only in the sense like me, that they escaped, but the people they loved didn't escape. But in the literal sense, they escaped and the people who didn't escape died. I imagine that there's got to be a lot of guilt there. I'm familiar with the concept, but I think this is slightly different in that it's not that they're they're feeling guilty that the other people didn't have the opportunity. It's almost like a FOMO thing, you know, because these are people that still to this day say that they believe that David Koresh was God incarnate. I feel like it's both. I think that survivor guilt is a very common human emotion and that these people are feeling it regardless of whether they know that that's what they're feeling or not. And they may be interpreting that as FOMO, like I should have died with the prophet, huh. or that there's a mix maybe of both of those things going on for them. But I, I identify with this and this concept of saying that he's uh, still believing that he is God incarnate. Yeah, like these are people that are saying, I believe that David Koresh will return one day. Well, if it seems weird to you that I identify with that, People should go back and listen to how conflicted I was doing the Jack Hiles episodes in the first Family of Fundamentalism series. It is so hard to break free from that kind of mind control. And personally, I have a very hard time blaming people who aren't willing to do the kind of soul-destroying work of unpacking that thing. Even even as like a person myself, I did that work. Even as someone who chose to go through that pain and break free, I still really struggle to blame people who just don't for whatever reason. Yeah, that's really insightful. Um I think that we should maybe shift gears and talk about some of the people who 
never got that chance uh, and not because they chose it, but because that choice was made for them. That is the biggest thing about this entire story for me. It, it's the the little children who were there. There was a Chicago Tribune article that I turned up while researching for this, and the title is FBI Koresh Wanted His Kids to Perish. There's a quote from FBI agent Jeff Jamar that reads, Those children are dead because David Koresh had them killed. He chose those children to die. And the slant of the article is, these kids died because their dad was evil. I don't disagree with that. These kids died because Koresh didn't prioritize their safety. They died because Koresh wanted him wanted his children to be martyred with him. But the slant of the article and the language used to me seems like it dehumanizes these children. It makes them a pawn in Koresh's game against the FBI and takes away their humanity. The th- the thing is that Those kids didn't choose to be born into a cult any more than I chose to be born into a cult. They didn't choose to be raised on that compound. They didn't choose to be beaten, to be sexually abused, and they didn't choose to die. I really, I identify with those kids, especially because if they were alive, they would be our age. This happened when I was a little baby. These kids would be in their late 20s and early 30s if they had lived. They might have homes and lives and jobs and partners, and some of them might even have children themselves. They would have been presented with the opportunity to continue to follow Koresh or to get out. I just, I feel like I'm almost an avatar for those children. Like they could have been me. There could be a kid who grew up in the Branch Davidians who had a podcast called Leaving Mount Carmel with their best friend who wasn't raised in the Branch Davidians. And that person could have had a loving partner and a nice home and a baby and a platform and all of the things that I have. And they could have been and done all of the things that I'm proud of myself for being and doing. But that person doesn't exist because they died as a baby or a small child. And that just, that really just tears me up personally. Just, I'm bald watching the end of the the Netflix series on this because like I don't feel bad for David Koresh like he he chose his path and he arrived at the end of the path that he chose for himself and the same for the adults in the group it is it's unfortunate and sad that they were brainwashed and that they were part of a cult and it's tragic that they died when the FBI should have been able to find non-lethal ways of getting them out but i don't i don't i don't have the same extreme emotional response to them as i do to the children i just i cannot stop thinking about who they would have been if they hadn't been sacrifices on the altar of david koresh's prophetic visions and it just makes me really sad so there is one detail that i left out of this story up to this point and for me this one detail basically changes everything about how i see this what's that so In the initial firefight during the raid on March 28th, David Koresh was wounded. He was shot twice. Uh, He was shot once in the arm and once in the abdomen. And the abdominal wound was likely to be fatal. This standoff had an expiration date. And David Koresh knew that he would likely die if he did not come out and seek medical attention. Have you seen the movie uh, Reservoir Dogs? Yes, I have. Classic film. In that movie... There's a character who gets shot in the stomach and thinks he's dying. And there's a whole discussion about how it takes days to die from a stomach gunshot wound. Like, if it's not treated, you almost certainly will die 
eventually, but it could be days or weeks. Well, Koresh was, uh, he wasn't shot in the stomach, but I th- I think it was more ancillary to that. But I mean, you, c- you can see the bullet wound in the video from inside the compound that he sent like out to the news networks because they wanted proof that the children inside were okay. So they had to do a video. And so he filmed the video of himself. Um, and he's like, here's where I got shot. Yeah, I uh, saw that video. I, what I'm saying is that you're correct. Koresh would have known that any abdomen shot, you probably will eventually die from infection or sepsis if it isn't treated. Like he would have known that there was a an end coming, but he would have known that it could be quite a while. So see, for me, this is where it shifts, because if he's not dying, then the children in the compound are just human shields. They're a bargaining chip. Um, he's basically got a gun to their heads uh, without actually having a gun to their heads. But if he's dying, this is a decision that he makes. He says, I am dying. These children will die with me. You see what I'm saying? Like mm-hmm. it, it, the decision to burn the compound that goes from a threat to an inevitability. He goes from saying, don't raid us or the kids will die to when they raid us, burn the compound and kill the children. I, I agree. Koresh signed his own children's metaphorical death certificates and he made the decision. If I'm dying, all of my followers and all of my children are dying with me. And I agree that the deaths, especially the deaths of the children, are on his hands. That being said, I still think that the media dehumanized the people who died in some of the coverage by playing up their status as cult members. I I think we can do better than that, especially for the kids, because Koresh treated his children as pawns, as PR, just like Jim Bob Duggar does, and just like Bill Gothard does with the reversal choir, and just like Jack Hiles did. But I, I don't think we're we have to do that. I think we can portray these kids as real people who never got the chance to show us what they were going to become. Yeah, and I I definitely don't disagree with you that you know that portraying these children as like the way that they did, you know, you, talking about them as cult members is a bit dehumanizing. But you know, that's what the they're going to do, you know, if it bleeds it leads. Mhm. So that's that's uh, the reality of news media. Uh, it was true then, and now I think it's even more true. I mean, but like I've seen this before, where very bad people will basically leave children in the line of fire or put children in the line of fire instead of like evacuating them in order to prove a point about how evil their enemies are. Right. And if anti-abortion people want something to be mad about, there's something to be mad about. Yeah. Like, there's a cause. I'm sure everybody with a conscience was mad about this. True. I'm. I'm not trying to to slam every anti-abortion person uh, i just i feel that it's appropriate if that's your cause that you also are extremely concerned about born children who are put in danger and used as pawns i just one other point i wanted to bring up about the kids is that if there had never been a raid if koresh had gone on being a cult leader for the rest of his natural life it's likely that some of these children would have grown up to be cult members. Some of them would have turned out, just like some of the Duggar children have turned out to support the IBLP, some of them would have turned out to support Koresh. One of his sons would probably have been the next leader of the Branch Davidians. And I think that some people like to use this as an excuse to to justify the deaths of the children. Statements like, oh, well, they were just kids, but some of them would have grown up to be just as bad as their dad. To project that they would have grown up to cause more damage and also be bad people like their father was. My perspective is that if there were 20 children that died at Waco 
and just one of them would have grown up to leave and have a full life, even if the other 19 grew up to be Branch Davidians, grew up to be harmful people, it's still not okay that all 20 of them weren't given the choice. This is almost less about the children's death for me and more about the children's lack of freedom or lack of a choice. What's about their lives? It's not that both aren't tragic and upsetting, but I think what upsets me more than the actual death is the fact that they didn't, they were never given a choice. Regardless of whether we would disagree with the choice that all but one of them would have made in this hypothetical, the tragedy isn't just that they died. It's a double tragedy here. Yeah. I mean, if anything, um, really studying this has made me see this in a new light, not David Koresh's new light. Uh, But like we talked about, you know, with the seven seals earlier, David Koresh, you know, one of the things that he was saying is he said uh, that he would come out after he finished writing this religious paper, get it out into the world. And the FBI, you know, when they did their raid, they essentially said, this is a stalling tactic. He's not coming out. Uh, He got the first. So basically there there was this whole seven seals thing that he was talking about. And so he was like going to write the seven seals as like a book uh like an extra book on on the end of the bible or whatever i guess is if he's the next jesus then he can write this book and and it's going to go on their bible and he got done with like the first seal and then the fbi was like nah we're we're going in all of the stuff that i read was basically like oh if only he had time to finish the seven seals then he would have come out i don't buy that at all i think he was like stalling until he died from his wound at which point they would have burned down the compound i don't like like, I, I don't see any other way for this to end. I know that a lot of people are blaming the FBI. And I remember reading that people were really laying into to Janet Reno, who was the attorney general at the time. But like the way I see it, like the, the initial mistake was the ATFs. And that after the ATF made that like mistake of going in, even though they knew that the Davidians were tipped off, there's no other way that this was going to end. I can I can see that. I think there is there's so much to wonder about if the initial raid had gone down differently or, well, what if Koresh had finished all of the writing that he was trying to do? I I tend to agree with your theory that it was a stalling tactic because it took him 51 days to write the first seal. So I don't think I don't think he was writing it from the beginning. Because what happened was there was... um, He had been working on this manifesto before the raid, right? No, no, no. What had happened was uh, there was a couple of religious scholars who figured out what he was talking about because they had studied, you know, end times prophecies and stuff. And they were like, this one guy had like an advanced degree and specifically his area of expertise was like doomsday cults. And so he was like, oh... Well, there's this one Christian radio broadcaster that the Branch Davidians listen to. I'm going to go on this guy's show and say, you know, David Koresh, you should really write your book of the seven seals. And then he went on the program and and said that. And then David Koresh was listening. And David Koresh is like, you know what? I'm going to go and write this book of the seven seals. And then once that's done, I'm going to come out. I mean, that's that's just another way that you know that this guy's a con man is because he's just like, yes, there we go. That's my idea. That's I, I had a message from God that I'm going to write this book. And the message from God came from some guy on the radio. <laughs> <laughs> that's a, that's very on brand for the IFB. Yeah. I know that there's a lot of reason to see him as a con artist on the scale of delusional to con artist. 
or true believer to Grifter. I see him somewhere in the middle, but closer, maybe um, 40, 60% true believer, 40% Grifter. <coughs> it's not that he didn't do anything wrong. It's just that I, I personally really think that there was an element of true belief to him. I see him as a person who willingly sacrificed his own children for his own self-interest and to make a point, which is evil. But I also see him as someone who died to make a point. And I really think that even the griftiest grifter who would sacrifice their children for the grift wouldn't usually be willing to die themselves because that kind of defeats the point of whatever it is they're trying to do. So I, th- I think the fact that he chose to die himself shows that there was that it's not 100 percent grifter. There is some percentage of true belief there. Yeah, and I think that if he was a grifter, then he would have come out, uh, gotten medical attention, and then mounted a strong legal defense. And I think that there's a decent enough chance that he would have won, or at least that he would have gotten like lesser charges, considering that the details of the raid, considering it's still very up in the air whether the ATF or the Davidians fired the first shots, there is a very reasonable possibility that he would have been found not guilty of some of the charges if... It had gone to court and he could have put the whole federal law enforcement on trial in a very public way. They probably would have gotten him on the weapons charges uh, and maybe he would have been acquitted of of murder or attempted murder of uh, federal law enforcement agents. Either way, if he wasn't a true believer, he had options. I'm with you on the delusional side. So do we have anything else to talk about with the David Koresh and Branch Davidians? No, I think that's kind of it. Um, it's been a lot. <laughs> a very sad story, you know. Very horrible story. A lot of a lot of people. Died. It is, and it's it's got this um kind of perennial fascination, which I tend to think is because of David Koresh. I think he's just such such an interesting figure. Yeah, he's extremely charismatic, despite the fact that he had a mullet. <laughs> I don't know. I I don't know how we got through the whole episode without discussing the fact that David Koresh had like a. <laughs> like a, a, a mullet, I don't know how we did that either you know, a strong mullet yeah um I remember I texted you when we were uh, uh researching this episode I'm like the mullet has to be like a center point of what we talk <laughs> no uh yeah I think um I, I just think you know if you have a mullet and you're still charismatic enough to be the cult leader who steals everybody's wives I think he was probably just a, a very gifted people person and yeah. got very twisted up in this whole thing and then decided like, oh, well, I'm already a cult leader. I might as well just be evil. Might as well be Jesus. And too Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> evil Jesus. Uh, like Jesus with a mustache. That's what you've got. Like Jesus with you, you get Jesus with a goatee. That's how you know he's evil Jesus. Anyway, if you like our show, uh, if you liked our coverage, uh, you can subscribe to our Patreon where we have an extremely extended episode version of this episode with a lot of bonus content. Um, yeah, the Patreon version of this episode is probably two and a half hours. I don't know how long it's going to be. That's my guess. 
we'll see how I did on predicting it. Yeah, the uh, but that's leaving. Uh, that's patreon.com slash leaving Eden podcast. You can uh, join our Facebook group, which is going to be facebook.com slash groups slash Eden Exodus. You can go to our subreddit, which is going to be reddit.com slash r slash Eden Exodus. You can follow the podcast on social media on Facebook and Instagram. It is at leaving Eden podcast on Twitter. It is at leaving Eden pod. We are going to do a Q&A episode later this month and please send us uh your questions for that one uh, you can send your questions to a uh, leaving eden pod at gmail.com or send us a voice message uh at the bottom of what of of the the show notes there's a link to do that you can do that or uh you can also just record a voice memo on your phone and if we like the way that you sound then we'll play it uh, and answer your question and you can hear yourself on the the, the podcast. I am really excited about getting to answer some some of those voice message questions and let people like hear themselves ask questions on air. That's really exciting. Uh, Sadie, what do we have going on next week? So next week we're going to talk about um, my experiences at Pensacola Christian College. So if you if you click on like a BuzzFeed article about uh, the strictest colleges in America, you probably won't see Hiles Anderson on the list because the people who make that kind of listicle, Hiles Anderson is so obscure that they probably have never heard of it. But usually what they do list as the number one strictest college in America is Pensacola Christian College. Pensacola is actually at least a little bit less strict than Hiles Anderson, but that's where I went after I left Hiles Anderson College after the whole SCOP fiasco. And my stories from Pensacola are a lot more just bizarre and hilarious and a lot less um, mega trauma. So we're going to talk about the college and my experiences there. I think it's going to be pretty fun. Yeah. Uh, Sadie, uh, so before we go, why don't you plug your social media? You can follow me on Instagram at Sadie Carpenter Music. You can follow me on Twitter at Hell yeah Sadie or on TikTok at Sadie Carpenter One. And you can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at G-A-V-R-I-E-L-H-A-C-O-H-E-N. Um, thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, we'll see you guys next week. Bye-bye. But Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.